All right, well, today we are continuing in our series uh, called The Old School is the New School. And really what we're trying to do is we're trying to paint this picture of these timeless foundations that God has given us over 2,000 years ago and to see how they're still very relevant to our lives today. See, a lot of times in our modern culture, we're looking for the next great big thing, the, new, the newest or flashiest idea uh, or gadget. And don't get me wrong, I love new and flashy things. I love innovation as much as the next person. But oftentimes as we pursue those new or great things, we lose sight of the old things. And we forget that those old things are the foundation that we stand on. And it's those foundations that we stand on. If we don't have those foundations, really those new and flashy things, they really become meaningless. And so what we're kind of trying to do is we're trying to kind of go back so to some of those foundational truths that we need to hold tight to because it's those truths that really, truly bring life to us. So I want to share a, a really cool story with you today. It's called The Walk to Emmaus. So if you've, if you've got a Bible, this story is recorded in, in the Gospel of Luke. If you've got a Bible or you've got an app on your iPhone or, or your iPad or whatever, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 24 because it's where we're going to spend most of our time today. And we're going to start in verse 13. And it says, it says in there, it says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Now, before we get too far in the story, I want to give you a little bit of background information to put the story in context for you. So this story happens three days after the crucifixion. So it's on a Sunday after Jesus is executed. And these two guys are walking back from Jerusalem after uh, the crucifixion. Okay? And these, these two guys are Jesus' disciples. Now, we don't know anything else about them other than what we get from this story. They're not apostles. They're not significant characters that are, that are recorded in other gospels. They're just two plain, ordinary disciples. And they're coming back from Jerusalem. Now you have to also remember that just a week ago, a week before the crucifixion was Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and the whole city is praising his name, calling him the Messiah. And you have to believe that these two disciples, like all of other Jesus' disciples, have their hopes raised to this fever pitch, thinking that Jesus is the Messiah, come to deliver them from the tyranny of Roman occupation, that Jesus is going to come and remove the Romans' oppression from the Jews. But that's not what happens. See, the master that they loved and they followed all of this time, the one that they had all of their hopes on to free them, had just been horribly put to death. And it was a cruel death, a degrading kind of death. See, death by crucifixion was the most shameful of deaths. Victims were made a public spectacle, and they were exposed to the jeers of all the people that passed by. So the guy that they thought was their deliverer now lay dead in a sealed tomb, and their hopes were dashed. Their dream was over. See, my guess is that these two guys are like two guys coming home from the Super Bowl, where their team lost the Super Bowl in the final seconds of the game by missing a 20-yard field goal. Are there any Red Sox fans in here? Anybody Red Sox? Where's Eric Kelly? Just mention Bill Buckner to him. He'll know what I'm talking about. You, it's that feeling of hopelessness. 
As a Kentucky fan, and I'm a huge Kentucky fan, and I, I even, is Glenn Nakamura here today? I'm sorry, Glenn. I hate to show this, but it's kind of like this. Show this, show this clip for me. On probation, nobody else wanted them. They had no place else to go. Delfrey, Feldhouse, and Farmer grew up in Kentucky. Sean Woods in Indianapolis. You know, one of the things I've seen Duke do in the past in situations like this is try for the quick pass to half court oh, and call a quick timeout so they can get in better shooting range. There's the pass to Leitner. Puts it up. We can be done with that. I remember that day. Oh, everything in me was crushed. Oh, it hurt so bad. I'll never forget that game. That, that's probably one of the greatest games in, in college basketball history. And, and for Kentucky fans, it was the worst game in college basketball history. And I'll never forget it. But it's over. There's no more hope. There's no more time on the clock, no more last-second heroics, no more at-bats. It's done, and it's final for these two guys. So they're on their way back trying to figure out what happened. Just like I've been trying to figure out why Rick Pitino did not put somebody on the inbounds on that play for the last 20 years. I don't know why, but anyways, for these guys, they're walking back, and they're going, what happened? And while they were walking back, they were talking and discussing together. And Jesus himself draws near, and he went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, this is a, a very important part of the story. I'm going to tell you why later. But just know that they were supernaturally restricted from knowing and recognizing who Jesus was. And he says to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. See, they had just lost the Super Bowl of all time. And then one of them, Cleopas, he answered, and he says, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have, ha that have happened there in these days? It's almost like he's saying to Jesus, Are you living under a rock? Where have you been? You can't tell me you just came from Jerusalem and have no idea what's going on. And I love this part, because this part's really cool, because Jesus just goes along and plays along very nonchalantly, and he's like, what things? What do you mean? What are you guys talking about? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. See, they had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. See, it, that says it all for their state of mind. They were in complete despair. And besides, this is the third day. See, there's a Jewish tradition that this, when a person dies, the spirit kind of hangs around for three days. But after that, there's really no, possible, no possibility of resurrection. So even if they believed in the possibility that Jesus was going to come back to life, their hope had been dashed for them as well. 
Because Jesus didn't come back to life and conquer the Romans like they expected him to. See, human hope, it's a very fragile thing. And when it withers, it's difficult to revive. And then despair sets in. And that's how often the way life is for us. See, we go through life with these highs and lows. And just like these two guys, when things are high, hope is strong. And everything is great. But when things are low, hope fades. And it fades real quickly. And usually hope fades because things don't work out the way we think they should work out. And we feel like God's abandoned us. And then we begin to despair. Even though he's walking right beside us. And he's asking us, what's all the fuss about? See, I have to tell you, I'm always amazed by God's providence. I'm always amazed by God's timing. See, I was scheduled to speak on this topic over a month ago. And yet, it's exactly what I have been struggling with for the past two weeks. See, the past couple of weeks have been very, very hard for me. And really for all of our staff, it's been really hard. See, there's an enemy out there that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Brian talked about this a few weeks ago. Satan is real. And he does not want TBA Church to be successful. He wants to destroy the work that God is doing here. Now you might think I'm crazy, but I believe with all my heart there is a real spiritual battle going on. A battle for the future of this church. Because I believe that God has given TBA an amazing vision. To be that church that truly makes a difference in the lives of the people around us. And see, things are happening. God's putting passion into our people to live the gospel out in a tangible way. So we believe that God has given us our marching orders when it comes to that vision. And we're in the process of trying to put teams together, creating a strategy, figuring out how to fund ministries that God's called us to. And soon we're going to be asking you to join in. But because of all of that good work that God is doing, because of all of those things, there is an attack upon the leadership of your church. And it's been great. See, Satan doesn't want us to do these things that God's called us to do. Because he knows the effect that we can have on those people that he already has in his hand. He knows the power and freedom that comes with sharing the love and the good news of Jesus Christ. So he has an all-out attack to stop it. See, but the thing is, his attacks, they're subtle and they're hard to see. He doesn't attack from the front. I wish he did. I wish it was a frontal attack because it'd be so easy to prepare for. But instead, he uses our weaknesses against us. He uses our insecurities, our flesh. See, he will use things like miscommunication, discontent, gossip, bitterness, to keep us from being unified. These are some of his greatest weapons. And let me just stop here for a minute. I know we're getting a little bit off track, but I believe this is really, really important. I want you to know that things like gossip, discontent, bitterness, those things will destroy this church if we allow it to. 
See, we as pastors, we see its destructive power over and over again. We see how it tears friendships apart, how it destroys relationships, and its divisive power on the church is devastating. Listen, I know that a church of our size, it's impossible to make everybody happy. And there are times when we, when we hurt each other's feelings or things are said that are misinterpreted. And there are times when we just plain make mistakes because we're all broken. All of us are. And we all fall short of God's glory. And those things are going to happen. But if we're not going to go to each other in love and make those things right, if we're going to allow bitterness to build inside of us, if we instead go to others to complain, instead of going to the source of the issues, then Satan wins. He wins. I want you to know that as pastors, we are not, we're not perfect. We make mistakes. We all do. And at times we say things without thinking, just like the rest of you guys do. And we don't always make the right decisions. And, that, and we know that you guys aren't always going to agree with the decisions that are made. But I also know that the temptation is to sit back and kind of be that armchair quarterback and question everything and every decision that the church makes. I want you to know that is gossip as well. And it destroys. Because when that kind of talk happens, seeds of doubt are planted into other people. And others who may not be as strong in their faith as you are destroys their faith. And it's a tactic that the enemy uses to cause doubt. Now, I'm not saying you can't ask questions. I'm not saying that you can't disagree. But please come and talk with the leaders, with us, with those who make those decisions. Come in love, not out of anger, and let's talk it through. Our doors, our doors as pastors, we're open all the time. We never have closed doors. Our leaders' doors are open all the time. Come and talk. That's what Matthew 18 says. It's what we're commanded to do by Jesus. See, my hope is, my hope is that we all have the same heart. That we all have a heart to see the broken world that is around us, healed by the love of Jesus Christ. But that can't happen if we allow the enemy to divide us and to keep us from offering and receiving forgiveness from each other. See, before I became a pastor, I thought going into the ministry full-time would be the greatest job of all time. And it is. Don't get me wrong, I wouldn't change it for anything. But I didn't realize how hard of a job it would be. This job is the hardest thing I've ever done. And I've been in charge of multi-million dollar installations with impossible margins and even more impossible deadlines. But this job is so much harder. And I believe it's harder because the stakes are so much higher. And I'm not saying all that to get sympathy. I'm just trying to show you how heavy my heart has been for the past couple of weeks. And what the enemy has been doing to me. Because the past few weeks, I've been like these two guys. Living without hope. Living in despair. And the crazy thing is, 
is I've been delivered through worse things by God. Ashley and I were talking about it the other day. God has taken me through worse times. But yet here I am with little small things allowing them to put me in despair. Because I know what God's done, but I'm still in despair. It's similar to the story of Elijah after he came down off of the mountain. If you're not familiar with that story, let me tell you to your real tell it to you real quick. Elijah basically challenges all the prophets of Baal to the greatest smackdown of all times. What Elijah says, he goes, he says, we're going to prove whose God is the true God. So let's, let's, let's do this. Let's make two offerings, okay? And then you can pray to your God, Baal, and I'll pray to the God of Israel. And the God that answers with fire, that God is the true God. And so the the prophets of Baal, they agree to Elijah's challenge. And so they set up their altar and they begin to call on their God. And they're praying and dancing and praying and dancing. And that goes on from morning until noon. Now at noontime, Elijah starts to talk smack to him. I mean, he's really confident about it. He's going, well, maybe your God's busy or maybe he's asleep. Why don't you yell a little louder? Maybe your God's on vacation. He's just not home. And so he talks the smack to them because he's so confident about God's power. And so they keep praying all the way up into evening and nothing happens. And then it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah goes, here's what we're going to do to make sure that there are no tricks involved. I want you to get four large barrels of water and I want you to dump them on the altar. Dump them on all the wood. And then I want you to do it again. And then I want you to do it again. And they dump so much water that there's a trough of water around the altar. And then Elijah prays one simple little prayer. And he's like, God, let them know that you are the one true God. And fire from heaven comes down and consumes everything. And so Elijah is on the mountaintop full, knowing how powerful God is. And then he comes down off of the mountain. And when he comes down off of the mountain, Jezebel hears about what he did. And she's mad. She's mad about it. So she threatens Elijah's life. And Elijah flees and runs away. See, we see God do amazing things in our lives. Just like Elijah did. Just like these two disciples seen, they saw Jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle. But regardless of all that, even in the face of truth, sometimes we don't believe. And the power of one word, one woman, can send us, send us fleeing for our lives. Look at verse 22. It says, Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. The angels said he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. Now these two guys, they had to have had some kind of idea of what an empty tomb meant. I mean, they had heard Jesus before say that he was going to raise himself in three days. But because it didn't happen the way they thought it should happen, they stood there in the face of truth, in the face of an empty tomb, 
and they still lost faith. You see, in order for us to keep hopelessness and despair at bay, we have to have truth. We have to have God's truth spoken into our lives. But oftentimes we're not listening for truth. We're just not listening. It was that way for me this week. See, I was seeking God, I was. I was seeking God and I was praying to him. And even in my prayers, I would pray and I would cry out to God. But it was a prayer out of despair. And there's nothing wrong with crying out to God, even in despair. There's nothing wrong with that. God wants us to do that. The problem is, is I stayed in despair. I stayed there. And really what I was doing was I was asking God just to take me out of my circumstances. Just to come in and fix everything. Take the pain away. Take the despair away. But see, God doesn't work that way. See, God could. He could come supernaturally in and fix everything for me and make all of the despair go away. But that wouldn't be any good for me. See, I wouldn't learn anything from it. And my faith wouldn't grow from it. It was the same thing for Paul. See, Paul had a thorn in his flesh. It was something that he struggled with deeply. And he asked God to remove it. And he says, three different times, I begged, I begged the Lord to take it away. And each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. See, I know this is hard to understand, especially when you're suffering or you're going through something that causes such immense pain in your life. But see, we have to have faith that God's plans for us are plans for good, even if it's uncomfortable. See, I relate this most to the way I see my son. I love Alex so deeply. I love him so much that my heart hurts at times. And I hurt the most when he hurts, when he's going through a difficult time, when I hate to see him struggle. I hate to see him suffer. It really burdens my heart. And yes, I could swoop in. I could fix everything for him. But I know if I do, that in the long run, I'm really hurting him. Because he's not going to learn from it. And he's not going to be prepared for life. See, I also think that's why these two disciples, why they were not allowed to recognize Jesus Because if they recognized them, they'd miss out on what Jesus wanted to show them. He could have just walked up and said, hey, that's me. It's me, Jesus, I'm here, I'm alive. But he didn't do that because he wanted them to hear the truth that God had for them, for their particular circumstance. See, for me, in my despair, all I was doing was crying out to God. I was so consumed with my own despair that I didn't take the time to listen to God, to allow him to speak into my circumstance, to hear his words instead of my cries. And that's what Jesus does with these two guys. He says to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ 
should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, I think Jesus wanted their faith and their testimony to be based on scripture, not merely on their personal experience. No matter how moving or memorable that experience might be. See, experiences are great. They are. They're, they're amazing. I love to experience God in new and amazing ways. But experiences fade. They fade away. And just like Elijah, we have to eventually come down off of the mountain. And when we do, when we do come off the mountain, what are we going to hold on to? Because we have to hold on to something that lasts forever. Something that we can anchor our souls to when the storms of life rage around us. See, I can't tell you how important God's word is to your life. And I know I probably say this over and over and I sound like a broken record. But if we want the answers to life's problems, we have to be reading the words that give life. God's word is so amazing and so powerful, yet we are so reluctant to utilize it. Even though as Americans we have such easy access to it. But yet it's exactly what we need in those times when we feel like the world is pushing in on us. See, this is what God spoke to me. This is what God showed me last week. It's what I needed. Here's the verse he brought to me. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. See, God needed to remind me why I do what I do. And that no matter how hard it is, and no matter how hard it seems at times, he has never abandoned me, ever. I never cease to be amazed by the power of God's word in my life. And I think it's the same for these two disciples. See, Jesus wanted them to see the power of God's word in their life. Look at verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, he acted if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures. See, what I find amazing about this part of the story is about what they talked about that stirred their hearts. It was God's word. 
that stirred their hearts? Did, our not, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road, when he opened the scripture? See, they weren't concerned that he just vanished from sight. I mean, here's Jesus and poof, he's gone. And they don't like, man, did you just see? No, they were like, God's word stirred my heart. See, I believe that it's that power, the power of God's word, in conjunction with the Holy Spirit that opens their eyes for them to be able to recognize that Jesus is right before them. To know that he has been walking with them the whole time. To know that they haven't been abandoned, that there was still hope. See, I don't know what you guys are going through right now. Maybe you're like I was or you're like these two guys were. And you're walking down the road of life feeling like there is absolutely no hope. Maybe you're in a marriage that just feels hopeless and there's no way it's ever going to get better. Maybe you just lost your job and money's tight right now and you don't know how you're going to make ends meet. I don't know. Maybe you just feel alone and you don't think like anybody out there cares. I don't know what your situation is, but I want you to know this. Whatever it is, Jesus is walking right beside you. And he is speaking to you. And if you will allow him to, if you are open to what God is saying, his word and the Holy Spirit, it will change your whole perspective. Moreover, it will change your direction. Look at verse 33. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, as he appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. See, they got up that very same hour. It was late in the day, but they got up that hour and they went back to Jerusalem to spread the news. They got on the same road that road that was marked by defeat, the road that was marked by shattered hopes. But now that road was different. The road was full of possibilities. See, hope was alive for them. It was the same road, but a different destination. The same road, but a different conversation. It was the same road, but a different realization. See, only Jesus has the words of hope and life. His disciples said it. Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, are you also going to leave? And Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. You see, we have to be all in. And we have to have faith that God's plans for us are good. See, our circumstances may be uncomfortable right now, but it doesn't mean that God is not with us. We have to trust that whatever we're going through, He knows it. And He understands. And He's walking right beside us. See, faith requires trust. It requires believing that there is more than you can see with your eyes. There's this story of how a house caught on fire one night. And a young boy was forced to flee to the roof. 
And his father stands on the ground and his father has these outstretched arms and he's calling to his son. And he's going, son, jump, I will catch you. And he knows the boy has to jump in order to save his life. But see, all the boy could see was flames and smoke and blackness. And as you can imagine, he was afraid to leave the roof. And his father's on the ground and his father keeps yelling, jump, I will catch you. Jump, I will catch you. But the boy's like, but daddy, I can't see you. And the father says, but I can see you. And that's all that matters. See, God sees you. He sees you. And he knows what you're going through. The band's going to come up now. And they're going to sing a song by 10th Avenue North called By Your Side. I want to read some of the lyrics to you. It says this. Why are you striving these days? Why are you trying to earn grace? Why are you crying? Lift me your face. Just don't turn away. Why are you looking for love? Why are you still searching as if I'm not enough? To where will you go, child? Tell me where will you run? Because I'll be by your side whenever you fall. In the dead of night, whenever you call. And please don't fight these hands that are holding you. Because my hands are holding you. Look at these hands at my side. They swallowed the grave on that night when I drank the world's sin so I could carry you in and give you life. I want to give you life. See, whatever you're facing right now, it may seem like it's the end of hope. But I want you to know that with God, it is never the end. It is just the beginning of hope. Let's pray.